You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by our other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. What's up, fellas? How's it going, guys? Amen. I'm living. I'm alive. You good over there, Zach? On the West Coast? What was that? You good over yeah, there? Yeah, no, we're... We're doing good. It's bright and early. What's the weather like? What's the weather like over there? Uh, well, we had a pretty uh, spectacular Easter. It was. Uh, it's been. It was like. It was this last week. We had. We had rain, snow, and thunder and lightning. So oh, that's what a wonderful really, really nice, mix. Really nice. Really nice to have a, a blue skies for for Easter. And Aaron, I imagine London is just like a, a overcast cloud of of misery no for the the bank holiday weekend we had it was really hot oh really yeah the weather down south they can get really sunny and hot heat waves from spain come up the coast oh that's right you got the gulf stream the mid the midlands is where um it gets bad but yeah gotcha well anyway so back to the podcast so we devoted about the first month of this podcast to niebuhr's stance on pacifism and we want to stress that though that is an entry point for many into Niebuhr's thought that's not where Niebuhr begins and ends okay Um, I was we were all kind of hesitant to get into that at the start of the show because um, we didn't want to kind of pigeonhole Niebuhr we didn't want to typecast him as simply a creature of that debate but here we are we've kind of made it through that and we've resolved ourselves for the upcoming shows, maybe even going into the summer quite a bit, to reveal to you all, the audience, who this guy is and what makes him go. And you might be just on this podcast because you think, oh, I'm interested in theology and this gets into theology, or I'm interested in politics, this deals a little bit with that. And that's all well and good. But we do want to paint you a picture of who this Niebuhr guy was. Um, it's going to, and as you see, as we start getting into this, to the man, the myth, the legend, Reinhold Niebuhr, you'll see how his life actually has a lot to do with how he ends up shaping his theology. But uh, yeah, so as we're going, taking a step into this uh, new new goal of kind of unveiling who Niebuhr was to you all and kind of filling in Niebuhr, the historical person, the, the real person, we thought what better a place to start uh, than something biographical. Um, and my mind went to one place uh, when we turned to this new objective, and that is the theologian and historian Gary Dorian. Dr. Dorian was my professor at the Union Theological Seminary and actually occupies the Reinhold Niebuhr Chair of Social Ethics at Union. Um, So who better, right? And we can also announce at this time, we're excited to announce, that once we finish kind of working our way through this autobiographical snapshot that Dorian gives us of Niebuhr, we will be interviewing Dr. Gary Dorian himself in the flesh here on the podcast 
So we definitely have that to look forward to. I know I'm looking forward to it. Now, the book we'll be leafing through for this sketch of Niebuhr is Dorian's The Making of Liberal Theology, uh, the, the Making of American Liberal Theology, I'm sorry, uh, volume two. And this is a part of a massive uh, work by Dorian. It took him a long time to write this. Actually, I was in his class as he was finishing um, volume three up for this. Uh, but it's just a, a massive sketch of American liberal theology going way back. Um, and he spends a whole lot of time on Reinhold Niebuhr um, as being kind of a, a huge uh, watershed moment in liberal theology. But this chapter uh, he called Revolt of the Neoliberals. Revolt of the Neoliberals. Now, there's a lot to unpack with just that title, and I'm sure we'll get to that in a second. But let's go ahead and open this up a bit. Zach, what was your impression of this, of these opening couple uh, sections? Yeah, well, first I wanted to say um, part of the reason we're uh, doing this, right, looking into a biographical sketch, is that Aaron got some feedback from a listener. So we're, we're listening to you guys. Uh, we're getting your feedback. The, the, the listener said that, uh, who is this guy, Niebuhr, right? We're talking about his Niebuhr <laughs> pacifist. They wanted to know who the, who the heck is he? And so we thought, you know, what better way to kick it off, right? Take a little autobiographical sketch. And yeah. uh, th- did you say that uh, he's going to be joining us, right? He's going to be joining us May 3rd, uh, Gary Dorian is. Well, to our listeners, the, the date might not make a lot of sense because it will be dropping a few weeks after we actually interview him. But yes, uh, May 3rd is the actual day he would be on here with us. So if May 3rd comes across and you get a different podcast, just know that that's upcoming still for you all. But uh, make sure you say a prayer for us that we, uh, we don't embarrass ourselves talking to this uh, yeah. huge and important scholar. We probably will. We probably so- will. <laughs> but to answer your question, now that I've said that, um, I think that one of the two, the two things that I really pick out from this, well, I guess I'll just take three brief things real quick. Um, one is that I think Nero is pretty insecure or some iteration of that, yeah. right? At every level, because right? it takes a really personal sketch of his life. Yeah. He has this insecurity about like, it, does he fit in in college? Is he in the right place? Is he doing the right thing? He's kind of always second guessing himself and, and like thinking things over and like, he's not really sure of his place in the world or in academia or he's always uncertain of what he's supposed to be doing. Um, And so it's really clear. And it also paints a really personal sketch. He has a really interesting childhood. And the fact that, you know, they say, Oh, he wasn't really uh, Doran says that he wasn't, he he didn't have an exceptional education or anything like that, or a standard education. But in reality, like his father taught him Greek, right? So he was reading the the Hebrew manuscript. I mean, the, the Greek manuscripts in Greek as a kid, or as a young adult, a, a teenager, possibly. Mm-hmm. Dorian doesn't really elaborate exactly when he became fluent, but it's like, that's a pretty substantial thing. And I wonder, I really wonder. And maybe looking over the span of his youth, like he didn't have a PhD, but yeah, you're right. Like from his early childhood, this this dude had a father who was very um, in the, maybe we couldn't call it academic scene, but certainly the, the pastoral scene. Um, and uh writing and, and reading and uh and very well versed in all these things and taught his his son and we can assume his sons though 
poor Richard, I think, got the short end of the uh, of the of the stick um, when it came to attention from his father. Uh, we'll get to that later. But um, but certainly Niebuhr was brought up with an appreciation for the Bible and uh, and a, uh, certainly a way to read it. What, what, did, what did you take from it, Aaron? So, yeah, I'll try to keep my comments limited, but I think first maybe say that Bieber was born. Where was he born? I was born in Missouri in 1892. Mm-hmm. So he's coming on the scene just before World War I is supposed to start, right? Um, but what I took away was the way Dorian sets Niebuhr on the stage in the conversation of American theological tradition, right? Yeah. So he, he comes on the scene from a father who is deeply entrenched in pietism am, am i right in saying yeah, that yeah um who in f- for all who can be i guess the way i to see his father gustav is someone who likes to play the middle a bit which mm-hmm. i think you can kind of see that kind of characteristic in neighbor a bit kind of this moral ambiguity playing both sides i mean they he did take positions his father was quite uh, quite um, a, a staunch supporter uh, of um, the temperance movements uh, in the early in America, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting is the way Dorian sees irony, maybe this ambiguity is essential to Niebuhr's career to his theology. So Niebuhr himself, although he is extremely critical of the liberal uh, of liberalism. Um, Dorian argues that Niebuhr is essential, essential mm-hmm. part of the liberal uh, tradition in American theology. His social gospel albums never really leave him. And you can see that in, in certain elements of his own thought, um, such as Dorian says, he never doubted the social gospel assumption that Christians have a social mission uh, to secure the just ordering of the world. And his father did have similar leanings, although he was quite um, uh, uh, harsh on maybe socialism and these other things. But even Niebuhr's take on education, that we don't need several uh, special students. We need a college that education for all students, these sorts of principles that apply across boards. So that's why I kind of took away from the beginning of it. Excellent. I I think you bring out two really good points there. One about his father being kind of you know, bridging two worlds. Uh, Dorian says that he believed in miracles, but he hated dogmatism and loved Schleiermacher. So uh, that at the time, that at the time was probably more common than we think. I think that our historians tend to uh, just pit the entire world at that time. But, you know, you're either in with the liberals or you're in with the evangelical conservatives or something like that. But probably a lot of people were probably there where they maybe believe in miracles, but they uh, but they they lend an ear to Schleiermacher um, and kind of maybe that experiential type of reading of the text. And uh, and and probably a lot of them hated uh, dogmatism as well. So I think that was a good point. And also, Aaron, you're right to bring in and I'm glad that you did the way that Dorian frames Niebuhr from the beginning um, and within the context of theology at the time and historically, because Niebuhr Dorian wants to paint Niebuhr as still very much within the liberal tradition. And I think this is an important part. And it's something that somewhat uh, distinguishes, I think, Dorian a little bit in his take. A lot of people 
rightly or wrongly, um, will place Niebuhr firmly within the neo-Orthodox tradition. And, and Dorian, right from the beginning, pushes against this. And he actually kind of invents this, uh, this very different category for both he and Tillich, uh, which is the yeah. neo, neoliberal. So, he, and I, as we're going to find out, Dorian is going to be upfront about Niebuhr's issues with liberalism, but he's going to paint him as somebody who n- will fight with liberalism like it's, like it's his little brother. Um, Can I get him and ask a question then? Because I think sure. this might be a quite important distinction for our listeners. So with liberalism, right, the, the thing that Niebuhr um, is reacting against, um, Dorian says that Niebuhr retains this social gospel element that mm-hmm. the Christian mission is to secure the just ordering of the world to some extent, right? Yes. And you can see that when Niebuhr talks about relative forms of justice or you know, democracy can obtain relative forms of justice, blah, 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 blah. Um, but, you know, to make this clear, uh, Dorian sets out that what Niebuhr is actually revolting against is this, ex- he's exchanging these ideas of progress, moral progress, evolutionary progress for emphasis on tragedy. Yes. Which we'll cover in soon this book on Beyond Tragedy. Mm-hmm. Sin, which is essential to his component and thinking uh, on, on human nature and transcendence. Uh, and again, something that's really essential to his th- theology is how God transcends man, how man is transcending nature and rational mm-hmm. faculties. So he, he, he's exchanging these ideas of progress for more, I guess, how would you say, um, not not movable factors they're more not contingent but they're more stable factors of what it means to be this sort of thing it's not, human nature isn't progressing or changing human nature is always the same right so that might just be something there but what do you think dorian to get to the question sorry uh, what do you think dorian means when he says that niebuhr retains the social gospel element that brings him in this neoliberal tradition well i I think that what he means by that is he's not a bad, he, he's, he's critiquing it so it can be better. I think that's, how, I think that's um, Dorian's take on it mm-hmm. is that. I mean, you made the quote earlier uh, where you talked about like he, I mean, obviously Cliff's going to be the better expert on this because he, he's more familiar with the terms, but I think that at the heart of it, one of the things that Niebuhr maintains about his social gospel roots is that he believes in a, a, uh, a more just peace you know he believes that that's actually possible whereas if you go over to bars and stuff like that that's just not really the object i mean i, I was sharing with somebody that i was doing this podcast uh a pretty reformed guy in my church and he was like you know he, he started bringing up paul and how paul didn't really go after the tyrants of his time and he just preached the gospel and it kind of that otherworldliness right we need to just emphasize preaching the gospel maintaining a faithful witness as a church we're not really responsible for creating a more just mm-hmm. world and I think that Niebuhr maintains that throughout his thing, although he's very critical of social gospel, he still maintains, he, he, it, he's very different from Barth in that he believes fundamentally that as Christians, we're responsible to create a more just world. Yeah. I don't um, know if you guys, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but, and it was kind of my last question to Anthony Jones when we had him on here, pacifist uh, minister. 
um, I asked him, I gave him kind of an ultimatum. I said, what's more important, uh, making the Christianity makes the world better or that we are obedient? And I was trying to, I was trying to kind of nail down on this. He ended up kind of having a both and answer and saying that, well, by becoming more obedient, becoming more pious, we make the world better. But to somebody in Niebuhr's world, and I, and I would say that I, I share in this same sentiment, the overall objective of Christianity is here to make the world better necessarily, necessarily leads to some difficult tensions that we hold about our dogmas and piety um, to where we, we do have to make a decision about what is best for this world. Uh, is, it, is it best in, on occasion that we do relax our piety in order to dialogue and engage with the world? Um, and I, I, I like that uh, kind of, I, I like that way that Dorian does kind of narrow down on what liberalism is, is that he says that Christianity is here to make the world better. Um, and me and my kind of, my evangelical roots, and I, I had, despite, you know, my misgivings about my evangelical, my evangelical upbringing and that type of thing, something that I learned that was very key and kind of negotiating this tension was the both and, or not the both and, I'm sorry, but the, the here but not yet kingdom. And I do think that there's contained within theology this desire that the kingdom is here and we need to press toward it, but it's also not completely here either. So there is a way to kind of have both, but I think though the, the tendency for liberalism and the social gospel movement is more the kingdom that is here, that we are to bring the kingdom here right now um, bring its justice, bring all these things with a more heavy hand. Um, I, I don't know if, I don't know if that makes sense. Whereas kind of uh, well, how he would define maybe conservatism um, as, as more geared toward the kingdom that is not yet type of thing. Well, and, and he writes here, he says, uh, or Dorian says on page 446, um, he says that throughout the 1920s, Niebuhr filled the Christian century with calls for a robust faith in human possibilities, while warning that all immediate evidence contradicted this faith. Um, and I think that's very much like a, yeah, it's a paradox. paradox. But I think there's a yeah, and we'll and we'll get into this more here in a second. I think because he's going to become more explicitly Hegelian in moral man and moral society. And it's not that he's going to become that. It's just, I think it's more of a residual feature of his Marxism that's still kind of hanging around while he's writing more Man and Moral Society is that he'll still see kind of the spirit unfolding through history and progress type of thing. Um, so, but, but yeah, go ahead, Aaron. So like if we were to kind of define maybe some elements of Nero's thought that are present throughout his, his writings, we might say irony. Yes. In his scholasticism, um, he is investigating um, how the internal workings of an ideology, say like socialism or capitalism, uh, pacifism, these sorts of things, where do they take you, right? And mm -hmm. so in, in the tradition of like a continental thinker, the, you're looking for or you are trying to expound the thought using some sort of irony or method of irony was Kierkegaard uh, is it the sort of central his own thought and then you might also say looking at the paradox situation that life 
isn't conducive to what Aristotle brings down mm-hmm. to his formal logic. It's not A or B. It's right. A and B, perhaps. Or it's muddier than that. It's much more muddier, yeah. Life is not, yeah, life's a bit more insane than saying it is or is not. It's not black and, and white. And this brings us, I think, back into his upbringing and his early history, because what Dorian is going to um, express to us in these early pages is he, and I think Zach mentioned it earlier, but this feeling that Niebuhr's kind of cast between worlds and he's constantly kind of an alienated type figure that never quite feels at home wherever he is. And so after leaving his father, um, he goes to Yale, to Yale Div. And in a way he kind of had, he kind of attained everything that he was missing growing up in kind of a parochial uh, German, primarily German uh, conservative community. Um, and he gets to Yale, gets everything he wants and still hates it. Um, so there's kind of this tension that follows him wherever he goes. And the next step is, you know, uh, Yale Divinity School, um, which I, I don't know if either one of you want to speak to kind of his issues that he faced at Yale. I mean, there's a lot to be, that could be said. Um... I think, again, his insecurity, his, he has this really weird insecurity, like he's out of place. But I think that some of that, some of what we see with him is he's kind of refuses to be orthodox. You know what I mean? They definitely like that's a refusal. He refuses to kind of get pegged down to one specific view and not just for the sake of being pegged down to that view, but I think it stems from like this deep insecurity about whether or not it's actually true. But I think that it gives him a certain creativity. And I think that you start to see that here as they talk about his time at Yale, that his refusal to be nailed down theologically or politically um it creates some insecurity because he doesn't just find like a solace in like oh this is what this is what this says he's kind of always kind of looking at it and saying well this could be true this could be true this contradicts that that contradicts this and uh, i think that it gives him a certain freedom and a certain creativity that other writers i don't i think that they struggle to possess but i think it comes with a certain anxiety that he certainly has um, either that or the anxiety creates it. I'm not quite sure. I love um, that he he leaves that parochial uh, kind of narrow conservatism or evangelicalism of the Midwest, goes to Yale, maybe thinking, okay, this is where I'm going to get the training that I've always wanted. And he says uh, that he still learned, Dorian says that Niebuhr still learned more from private reading than he did in class. I can yeah. relate. I can totally relate to that. Yeah, um, definitely. I remember being at uh, at CCU, which is more conservative when I was there and going to Union thinking, all right, finally, I get to really get into some academic theology, really get into some philosophical theology. And I get to Union and I feel kind of like an outcast. And I feel like I'm I, I, I totally feel what he says here when he says, I feel all the time. This is a quote from Niebuhr. I feel all the time like I'm like a like a mongrel among thoroughbreds. Um, and that's what I am. And I, I felt that same alienation in grad school. And maybe that's, that's fairly common, but I ended up learning a whole lot more from things that I was reading on my own. And even my own, like I would read stuff for class and I would learn from that. But I always felt like I had to position myself against the status quo. I, and if anybody out there knows me personally, I am kind of a contrarian type uh, and maybe that's just my, my nature, but that, that's totally something that I'm picking up on with Niebuhr is this never feeling like what he's being served he wants. 
Well, and I think one of the things, I love this in that, not the spectacular of a quote, but it's a good quote uh, by Dorian. He says, just above what you just read on 438, he says, Niebuhr's reaction to Yale was typically conflicted. And I think that speaks to like his personality to some degree. You know what I mean? Like it was kind of typical of him. And I wonder though, as I was thinking about this and looking at his, these, you know, this kind of perpetual conflict that he had within himself, I wonder if that is part of what makes his theology very good, you know what I mean? Because he's kind of yeah. confronting you with that conflict. But I think it, it also makes him kind of a hard person to follow because I don't think that the, I mean, I understand the constant being in conflict, but I can also see how a lot of people would be confronted by his writing and want to put it down because it embodies some of his personality. You know, it's like, it's hard to follow somebody that lives with so much conflict, right? That's a lot of anxiety, a lot yeah. of like personal torment. And, and not everybody can like, hold up that much of that amount of like weight all the time you know what i mean um, yeah. just a thought yeah if you read his works i mean nature and destiny of man comes to mind the entire book just feels like he's trying to start fights between people like he's he's bringing up the rationalists the romantics the uh the idealists uh uh versus you know like he's bringing up all these schools just to kind of wage a war between them and then show, you know, from the rubble, like where each of them are lacking. And yeah, I, I think he's very, um, I, I think that his conflict style of writing, uh, it, it can be, to some people, it can seem like he's generalizing too much to create this conversation first and foremost. Mm -hmm. But also that the kinds of conflicts he creates, it feels like you're left with nothing at the end of it. And it can be kind of off-putting. But it's important to realize that this all comes from this already very internally conflicted human being. And I think potentially like the search for irony as opposed to an ending is categorically different in different types of philosophies right so for Niebuhr I mean this is where you get with like and this might be a larger discussion to be had later on but Niebuhr's relationship to postmodernism uh, I was just reading a a paper uh, on the postmodern condition in Christian ethics by Philip Goodchild and he makes a point that you know postmodernism is marked by a level of moral ambiguity and you find this ambiguity with Niebuhr's thinking. Yeah. It's ambiguous not because of you don't know where he's what he's saying. It's ambiguous because you don't know where it ends. You're not because you you're expecting some sort of some sort of solution to be presented to you, but he's kind of just resolve. laying out the problem for yeah. you. So that that's what you expect and what you find in most Niebuhr's writings from from what I especially what you get from Nature and Destiny Man. He's saying here's some ideas. Here's what, here's how they are in the history of thoughts and philosophy and theology. Here's where they take you. And here's why they aren't good enough. If you, if you take these things to be true. Absolutely. And I think that that's a, a key feature of Niebuhr's writing is exactly how you mentioned it from the top. You said that he, his desire to find the irony rather than the end. Um, I think that's a, that's a beautifully expressed point about who Niebuhr was and how he wrote and at the end of the day, you get to actually his main point about the human condition that we are conflicted, um, that we are never resolved. And any attempt to prematurely resolve the tensions of life yeah. is actually our quickest path to really bad things like self-righteousness and, um, and pride and resignation. All these things are re prematurely re relieving us of these tensions. I wonder 
is the way you say this. So I wonder what it says about our our preconceptions as well. If, for instance, I recall when when we first started doing this podcast about a year ago, I think the discussion Zach, anyway. Yeah, that was before the yeah, podcast. The yeah. yeah, Zach and I were like, well, what what is neighbor taking us to? What do we do with this? And I want that thing that tells us about our attention or where our attention lies and where our focus lies. And it might be a, you know, a result of our technological society where, you know, where you have a mechanical process that takes you from point A to point B. But when you, when you visit Niebuhr, he begins on the assumption that as you point, we're very complicated human beings with, you know, mm. never congruence, passions, desires, thoughts, we're always kind of conflicting in ourselves. And as a result, you're not going to have that in how we try to solve problems in the world, yeah. how we try to solve it either politically, scientifically, you know, mathematically, these sorts of things. But if you start from the position that say there, you know, there is a solution, i.e. Pro- progress, either morally or evolutionary, you will tend to see ends or see something that can be you know, concluded. Yeah. And I, I think that this is why um, since I've become more immersed in Niebuhr and I should say, I should confess ob- obsessed with Niebuhr. I mean, it's my life's work is getting into this man, um, learning about this man. But um, I've, the more that I've gotten into it, the more that I've come to respect the Socrates of the apology um, and not, you know, l- later Socrates's um, the, the Socrates that, that champions, um, the examined life and the constant wrestling match we have to, to attain wisdom and that wisdom begins in knowing nothing and, uh, and kind of re- relieving ourselves from these assumptions about life and, and the need to, to find that conclusion, uh, by the time he gets to, to Phaedo, um, a lot of that is already gone and Plato already begins kind of his construction of, of his, uh, his metaphysic and ontology. Um, but, uh, but that, yeah, I, I think that everything that I love about that gadfly spirit that I see in Socrates, that I see in Kierkegaard, um, a, a lot of these guys that are constantly deconstructing, not to, I hate using that buzzword, but they're constantly in the process of arriving but never arrived and Niebuhr certainly has that same spirit another, another Very thing well think, said. yeah another thing I think it's worth notice, noting is uh, about his time at Yale is I think he came out I mean I'm going to read this quote from page 439 it says Yale, uh, to his understanding Yale was committed to the liberal German hist- uh, history of religions approach to religion and so was he In this approach, Niebuhr explained, the Bible vanishes as any supernatural authority and Christianity is forced to compete with all religions upon a common basis. There is such a thing as biblical truth, he reasoned, but the content of this truth can only be established by the best reason and highest spiritual interests of modern people. Hmm. I think that establishes him at least coming out of Yale as, I don't say he was neo-Orthodox, I'd say he's definitely a liberal coming out of Yale. But I'd also say that he had a firm belief in the competitiveness or the competitive edge of Christianity over other views, um, his willingness to bring it into contact or his desire even to have it come into contact with other religious ideas 
uh, I think he expresses a pretty thorough, even in his kind of cynicism and skepticism, he definitely has a certain belief that like, let's, let's talk about this as one of the world religions and see how it kind of fares. I will um, split a, a little hair here and the type of liberal liberalism he came out of Yale with, and that I don't think he was as informed. Uh, he wasn't um, as informed of or aware of, or he didn't really channel a guy like Rauschenbusch, but instead a guy like William James. And William James, like, I think, um, you know, we would do a disservice to Niebuhr's time at Yale if we didn't at least mention the guy who he wrote his, his thesis on, and that is William James. And James sees religion as, um, he doesn't really care about the absolutes that religion gives us. He cares about what it ends up looking like on the ground. Okay, you believe in heaven as your afterlife. How does that shape you as a person now? Does it make you not care about this world? Um, does it give you hope to help this world? Let's not talk about the hypothetical of that thing, but how the hypothetical of that thing actually changes you now. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's a lot of what Niebuhr is picking up on by the time he leaves Yale to where he's thinking of Christianity less as um, something that's going to inform us of an actual other reality, but how believing these things about Christianity, Christianity actually shapes our ethic on the ground right now. Yeah. Does that make sense? Christianity becomes more of a way of life. Yes. As opposed to the doctrines or dogmas that one must submit themselves to. And he's not saying let's get rid of that stuff, but he's just saying, let's put the focus on what kind of creatures these beliefs are turning us into, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what he finds in Christianity is this perfect diet, like in his mind, I, like I, I could see Niebuhr resisting the urge to be like, this, see, this is all of this proves Christianity. The fact that there is this perfect dialectic going on that perfectly shapes our ethic and the way that we should understand the world that should prove all those other things about Christianity. He never goes that far. And I'm sure we'll have that discussion on this podcast at some point um, about how much of Christianity is validated by some of the jewels that he finds in it on how it can instruct our behavior. Uh, but for right now, as he's leaving Yale, his thinking is the, the pragmatism of Christianity, how it can shape a society uh, and so on. Yeah, I also think that he was pretty brutally honest. Um, and I think that to speak to your point, kind of where he was at, uh, maybe going into Yale and probably during his time at Yale, uh, in 438, uh, Dorian writes, Niebuhr confessed that he did not understand the doctrines of the divinity of Christ, the two natures of Christ, the trinity of God, and the communion of the spirit. And, mm. and maybe you don't either, Niebuhr wrote. But everyone <laughs> can understand the moral and social program of Christ. He observed on the, ba on the basis of this affirmation, he proposed to preach Christ as a solution to the problem of every human life. I think that, again, ties into our discussion about the social gospel, but it also tells you what he was most emphasizing. I mean, it's, it's like we were just talking about. It just really brings together that idea. He, he thought it had ethical implications and actually social implications. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of this, we could go into a long discussion about this, but a lot of this I know Dorian from class, he launched into, I don't just 
it was the most one of the most beautiful things I experienced in a class. Uh, he, Dorian, at one point could sense that we weren't totally understanding um, what this tradition of liberalism was at the time. So he launched into this off the cuff lecture on Immanuel Kant and explaining that Kant effectively um, kind of pigeonholed religion into the ethical realm um, as kind of being the one place that religion can speak um, uniquely uh, as opposed to um, the sciences. And, um, and so in liberalism, what that became was Jesus is primarily, even exclusively an ethical thinker above and beyond everything else. Yeah. Um, even uh, above his Christhood, above his uh, um, the larger engagement of Christ as, you know, creating this kingdom that will culminate in his return. Um, and instead, yeah, it, it became just kind of uh, an, an ethical, and, and it's what a lot of people, I, I know that, I, I believe that Hauerwas made this argument that, and I've heard others make this argument that that ethical Christ is kind of what turned the German theologians in, into these kind of weak uh, critics of Germany at a time when fascism was, was kicking up is because they only had a moral Christ. They didn't have another dimension to it that could speak to, to um, how the evil will be, will be judged, yeah. et cetera. And I think that's like a really good transition. There's something I really wanted to talk about and that it's, on, it's just one paragraph. I think it's worth reading. It kind of sets the stage. So it's just after Niebuhr reads, I mean, he, just after he leaves Yale. And this is what Dorian writes on page 440. He says, a few weeks after he graduated from Yale, Niebuhr discovered that his older brother, Walter, who had supported the Niebuhr family since Gustav, Niebuhr's father, had died. And Gustav was financially ruined so that the responsibility of being the family's breadwinner passed to Reinhold. He confessed to the press that the prospect of entering the ministry as a liberal was unsettling to him. I am a good deal worried that my liberalism will, will not all be liked in our church and will jeopardize my, any influence which I might in time have won in our church. Hmm. Um, and I, <clears throat> that wasn't the whole paragraph, but the reason I brought that up is I, I, I kind of thought about a parallel between what happens to Bart. You know, I don't, I, I don't, I can't recall the story completely, but I know that Barth kind of had a crisis with his own liberal views. Yeah. Um, his teacher. After, yeah. yeah. Just after leaving, right. He goes into, I think was it Switzerland. He went up into Switzerland and he started preaching on the book of Romans. And he kind of has this crisis about what it's like the power of liberalism. He, he, he kind of found a certain weakness to his liberalism. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's interesting that Niebuhr has, it's not the same crisis, obviously they're very different crises, but Niebuhr definitely kind of comes to this kind of like, wow, the, the liberal views that I hold in terms of theological liberalism, they're not going to match the people I'm going to. And they're, and they're, they're not, not going to matter to the people he's going to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they might not have a lot of force. They might not, you know, and it goes on in the paragraph and he says, and at the same time, he craved influence. He could, he could see no alternative to being theologically liberal. One would have to go to Princeton to escape this. He said, Niebuhr wanted to, <clears throat> for his first pastorate, a, pro a progressive Americanized, reasonably well-paying church. Instead, he was sent by president, uh, by Synod President General John Balthazar to German Parish on the northwest edge of Detroit, Bethel Evangelical Church. <clears throat> I think it's so interesting that, that that desire for influence, right? He understood the power 
and the centrality of influence, but yet at the same time, and in, in, in creating social change, but at the same time, he struggled with the fact that he was liberal, you know, like it, it, yeah. it, was, it was almost a liability. But it almost forced him then to speak the language of the people. It forced his liberalism to actually come to life, yeah. you know, and to be, become yeah. meaningful in, in this society. Because that's the funny bit about it. I think it's either on uh, uh, 439 or 440 on the same page that you're reading from uh, uh, Zach, that in another way, Dorian says that um, Niebuhr craved relevance, right? And interesting. liberalism itself, as we've kind of discussed from Kant up to today, uh, up to there, is this longing for religion to fit into this ethical model or mode of and analyzing features of society of how do I live my life or what does it mean to be human? These sorts of things. Those are very relevant questions, right? (laughs) And so if he's craving for relevance in his academic studies and he's also craving influence, but whilst he's also very scared about his liberal liberalism and how it'll be received by the church, it just kind of reflects on the state, the states of the church in his time period as well. Mm. What he's going into, do people actually really care about the issues, or what issues are people actually thinking about? And you know, what is it that Niebuhr is so afraid of bringing up to them that is contrary mm-hmm. to their their sort of preconceived preconceptions of Christianity in the world that day? Does that make sense to you guys, or? Yes, absolutely. Like, I, I think that I am curious about what, it, like, it, it, it just seems like if I were to analyze this, I would, I would, I couldn't resist reading my own story into this because I, I think that every minister, every pastor leaves seminary with kind of this uh, inflated sense that they're different, that they have a different kind of understanding of this book that everyone in the pews holds dear and you're worried about kind of disrupting that uh you're worried about kind of messing with um a certain understanding of the world um, that's already kind of working for them uh and you're worried that you know some of the things you might say um just kind of realities about what scripture is uh might interrupt things so it it I know that leaving seminary, leaving the academy when I left and I, and I started preaching here, yeah, there's always something in my mind where I'm very self-aware of things that I might say that, that wouldn't be accepted here if, if I were to be completely honest with, with the folks here. Well, I think part of the, I'll push back on that a little bit because I think that part of what I, I see in Niebuhr, and I think one of the things that makes him a fundamentally superior theologian to a lot of theologians is that he understands, I think, the, the centrality and importance of influence and, and is very realistic about it. Because like, I think of a guy that I know here um, that in the local community, one of the smartest people I've ever interacted with, very intelligent, very compassionate, very empathetic, um, just pastoral heart, right? He's a chaplain in the local community. Um, he, he originally was trying to be a pastor in the community, but the, his biggest problem, right? And it's the problem of geniuses, I think, is what it's called from uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, right? His biggest issue is that he can't 
maintain influence, right? He offends somebody. He's not able to navigate kind of those complexities, right? And so he's kind of been ostracized. And so he has no influence. So he has all these tremendous thoughts. I mean, I, I, I listen to him all the time because interesting. He's, he's incredibly intelligent and also incredibly thoughtful and, and very consistently compassionate. But he's unable or he just really struggles with, okay, maybe I don't say this in this context. He does, he's unable to navigate the, the complexities, right? And you run that to a lot of times with theologians, right? They can be very, actually really, really intelligent people. You can really run into that a lot of times. And they're not able to like maintain that, like that, the, the complexity necessary to actually have influence over people. Yeah. And it makes a huge difference between the, the types of people or, or where they can, the roles they can occupy in life. And I think Niebuhr, one of the things I love about him is he's always aware of the importance of influence and the importance of being able to maintain influence while still stabbing you with the dagger. Yeah. You know, he's still able to, to come alongside you and say like, Hey, he knows hard and difficult, but you still listen to him. He knows his audience really well, but, and he, he, but he also knows like how I think he could push them while still maintaining that relationship and respect. And I, yeah, go ahead. I will say it, it is a, it is a mystery to me how he did that because he's obviously very offensive to people. Like some people yeah. take it very, what he says is very offensive. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how he does it. I mean, it's the, the book that we're about to get into or that Dorian's about to get into more man and more society had that exact effect where, um, it sent shockwaves across liberalism at the time because this is a really well-respected, <clears throat> not quite a national figure yet, but he's really well-known for his work in Detroit. And he is coming out in some ways against the social gospel movement, in many ways against it. And, um, and it's amazing that his most kind of lightning rod, most controversial book would end up being what he's most kind of synonymous with. Like people think Niebuhr, they think more man, more society that is still read. I'm sure in every seminary or, or it's, or it's dealt with in some way, or it's brought up in a history class. I guess it depends on what seminary, but, uh, but it's a landmark book and it started out offending everyone, you know? Um, so obviously Niebuhr knew his audience well enough to know how far he could push them. But the, I think the good, if we're to put this like in a trajectory, like a, of from his life to seminary to preaching, because he takes over his father's congregation whilst he's at Yale because mm -hmm. his father dies. So the St. Louis uh, church, I think his father preached that. So from an early, well, from the early age or maybe later on in life, reflecting upon um, his, his brother's uh, view of their father as this tyrant Niebuhr had this very very loving and very adoring conception of his father so he's at odds with his brother he's at odds with what he learns at school and now he's at odds with his church I love it so as you said he's at odds at every corner of his life and he never finds this stable ground to really be resting on right and, and that's where he ushers into a moral man and moral society so you do have to wonder, I think, like, if, you know, if his understanding that we have to understand that by understanding our condition as unstable, yeah, that has some sort of influence from his experience. Oh, and and well. 
we missed another stepping stone, maybe a big one. Um, well, definitely a big one. And I think Zach could probably speak more on this because it's during the time he wrote uh, notes, uh, leaves from the notebook of an untamed uh, cynic. But it, we have to understand where, when he goes to when he goes to Detroit and he starts writing against Henry Ford and preaching against him from the pulpit. Okay, he we have to understand that Henry Ford at this time was beloved. I mean, across the country, everybody loved him because, and if, if you look at this historically, like the, the kind of, you know, ridiculously rich one percenters or whatever, uh, at the, at, at, at leading up to, to Henry Ford were seen as the enemy, like, um, freaking Rockefellers and, uh, Carnegie's and and those guys had a very uh, awful relationship with the working class, um, and there you know th- there are awful stories about what they did to people trying to unionize, people trying to strike, and stuff like that. But then you get to to Henry Ford, and he becomes this poster child of how a rich guy treats his people. But Niebuhr gets into that environment, and he still hates it. And he still can't even get along with this guy that everybody loves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that proves to me more than anything that he could never, Niebuhr will never be anywhere that he's happy. He'll always find something. And then, and then he goes into union and finds the same kind of party waiting for him. And uh, as he's preparing to write more man and more society. Question real quick. And this is for both of you. In terms of a life well-lived, how do you think Niebuhr has such... It seemed like when I watched the documentary that was made about Niebuhr, it seemed that his wife was loving, his children were very loving, and it seemed for all intents and purposes he had a great life. But how can someone who lives such a contentious life of never being happy where you're at live such a happy life? Well, I think that's actually essential to his... <clears throat> that's it's funny you asked that question because I was literally thinking to myself as we were talking about this is that I think that it's really, it's interesting because like people want to resolve the contradictions of life and I think that he he felt that it was essential to live with certain contradictions c- competing contradictions mm-hmm. um and I think that <clears throat> he would see like a happy life as as living with a certain amount of uh conflicted na- like a conflicted nature right always kind of being plagued by the question of am I doing the right thing um, is this the right path? Is this the right cause? And anybody that fell into the the, the, yeah. the answer so easily was probably living some sort of false happiness. You know what I mean? I, I think that like, it's yeah. what generates, and this is totally me speculating, but I think what generates the love that you're talking about, I think uh, is somewhat associated with that being conflicted, living with certain interesting epistemological conflicts, you know? So it's I not do- really reducible to like the amorph fati of the stoics of the love your fate of you know just kind of accept what's happening to you but to accept your condition but qualify with still love mm-hmm. that you can still progress in life sort of thing i mean i i don't know if that makes that well, what, yeah. I mean, what i think is he had a, he had a true view of what progress really is you know what i mean it, it is to live in conflict but to come to some uh, a a closer approximation of justice as we talked about in, the, mm. in you know working towards a, a generational justice 
right? That's the same idea, but you live in the constant conflict that your ideals about justice and what really is happening are very much in conflict, but you're, you're slowly working towards that. I, I would relate it back to, so uh, two points. One, there is a letter that exists where he's writing to his brother and his brother, Richard, has a much more developed awareness, sense, uh, theology of kingdom and kind of this, all the hope and, and joy that accompanies that theology. And Niebuhr laments and he says that he's envious of his brother uh and he says that um he wishes that he could have that kind of hope and so that it makes me feel like maybe Niebuhr was tinged with a little bit more uh melancholy um than maybe we can see in the pages of history but also at the same time I love the way he ends the serenity prayer the long form of the serenity prayer where he asks God that he may be reasonably happy in this life and eternally happy with him in the next. And I, I, I always get caught on that. We, we just, for Lent, I actually took our church through the serenity prayer piece by piece each week. And I loved that last section, uh, that last, that one little sentence where he says that I may be reasonably happy in this life reasonably happy what what an interesting admission that we we aren't trying to attain you know complete happiness here but within the limits possible you know and uh and i think this is kind of what zach is talking about that within this conflict he's still capable of setting his uh expectations perhaps low enough or uh proportionately enough to the pain and suffering of this world that he is able to achieve some reasonably happy form of life mm. well i think as he's as he's you know struggling through and and i and i wish that dorian had kind of emphasized leads from the notebook of the team setting a little more but obviously he's working with he, he works with that as a source but he has a number of other sources um uh, i think that he's just incredibly honest about what's actually happening in his brain and what his actual experiences of life and ministry are. And I think that that's kind of uncommon. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's almost like a vulnerability that you don't quite experience mm. when you read really anybody else. Yeah. And maybe, you know, there, there are, there have been others in history, but he's very, you're, you become very familiar with what, what actually being a pastor at this time was like and what, you know, the insecurities, like he talks about, even he wrote somewhere, he says, um, that he was insecure about the the number of people in his denomination. Uh, he says, I, I suffer from an inferiority complex because of the very numerical weakness of my denomination. <laughs> like, okay, well, that's kind of, people say that's kind of shallow. You know, they'd say, oh, that's kind of you know, like, what kind of, what, what a vain person. But at the same time, he's just expressing like, man, as a pastor, you're going to experience that. You're going to encounter that. Um, he's just being honest about the realities. You know, that well, like, yes, I'm, I'm, that is kind of a shortcoming. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be insecure about that, but. I am, but it's a reality. <laughs> yeah, that's reality. You know, what dude. I mean? There was a guy on Twitter about it was a couple months ago. Uh, said out of the blue, um, "What if Niebuhr uh, was a part of the Episcopal tradition? He would be still celebrated to this day." And it made me think of that quote of of, of Niebuhr lamenting and thinking, "Man, I wish I was part of a larger denomination," because he ended up being a congregational, which I'm pleased with. 
or evangelical senate, senate or whatever it was called um german evangelical but it kind of fused with with my current denomination um and it is small like it's it's a lot smaller but had he been in that larger denomination he probably would be pretty central uh to their thinking and even liturgy still today i mean who knows well i think it's really interesting because like Niebuhr, like we're talking about over and over again, like he maintains a certain contradiction and like he, on the one hand, and I think that though that represents kind of the contradictions which exist in many minds. Like I know that I go through life where it's like, I see a position politically and I'm like, I disagree with that fundamentally, but then all of a sudden another issue comes up and I'm like, oof, that's actually a pretty good point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but then I'm like, well, you know, in order to ma- in maintain a non-contradiction in order to main- in maintain influence, often you have to maintain a certain cohesion in your thought or philosophy when in reality everybody kind of exists with these contradictions they exist with these strange you know a a, a great example like we were talking about with um just his response to liberal idealism right he comes out of this liberal school you know sorry theologically liberal right they're focused on liberal (laughs) theology at yale and he's kind of into the pastorate a ways um i I believe this is in the 1920s um, he writes this thing, uh, it says, Niebuhr worried that liberalism was flaw- fatally flawed as a means to create a just world order. He declared in the New Republic that liberal idealism lacks the spirit of enthusiasm, not to say the fanaticism, which is so necessary to move the world out of its beaten tracks. It is too intellectual, too, li- too little emotional, and to be an efficient force in history. So like he lives, he he. I, over and over again, he kind of like, you see like idealism emerge in his thought process, but at the same time, he's also fiercely critical of it. You know, he's fiercely critical of like, does this actually do anything in the world? Does it actually I love like, it. help anything? Does it create a change? Does it, it, and again, I see that same conflict that was almost going on in Barth. Ironically, they, they took different paths, but like Barth is struggling with like, okay, like I went to preach Romans and it means nothing to anyone because yeah. I'm, I'm summarizing obviously, but you almost see a similar thing with Niebuhr here. He's like, okay, like when this really hits the ground, when the, when the, when the, when your feet hit the ground, you have to live with a little more contradiction than the liberal idealists want to. Um, That's interesting. So I, I have a note here that just says that it's easy to see how he came to champion the uneasy conscience. And it's easy to see why he thinks Christianity is like, let's be honest here. If Niebuhr were around today, he would not have a theology anywhere reminiscent of a pluralism or anything like that. He believes that there are actually really bad religions out there and philosophical views out there. And within the kind of the marketplace of ideas, Christianity is the creme de la creme to Niebuhr. It is the best. And it's the best, he believes, because it creates this uneasy conscience at the center of the human being. Um, it, it is disruptful of our idols and our idea, ideologies and all these types of things. And that's a big reason why he loved it. And, and I don't know if it's chicken or egg, you know, I don't know if, if his life is what made him believe in Christianity so much um, or if his take on Christianity kind of created some of these obstacles in his life. Um, I'm not sure, but but there seems to be kind of a symmetry there between his end product and what and what he's lived. And also, I would say 
that there's something to the dialectical thinking, the Hegelian dialectic that is, that seems to kind of square with Niebuhr's life as well, of kind of these polar opposites crashing together to create a synthesis um, that is better. Something that his brother, I think, in the next section that we're going to read uh, next week, his brother is quick to point out that that's still, uh, you know, progressivism. That's still uh, a belief that we're going to achieve something. And and his brother is quick to point out that that's that's naive. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, there's just an interesting way that his life ends up bubbling up into his work and surrounding his work everywhere. I think that. Uh, what does Dorian say? He says that there's a Scylla and uh, uh, Charybdis. There's a Scylla and Charybdis and uh, almost every undertaking, two opposite dangers, two extremes between which one must sail and both which one must avoid if the undertaking is to be successful. And you read anything by Niebuhr, it's going to be set up kind of like a dialectic in, yeah. in that same way. The first time I read this, I actually didn't pick that story out and realize how pivotal it is, but it is actually very pivotal to understanding Niebuhr. I thought Dorian did a really good job of just highlighting, okay, like, wow, this is a, you know, this is a central paradigm of how he operates and how he decides to look at history and how he decides to make a decision about what's just. Yeah. And it's different. I don't think, I think some people might confuse it for a virtue ethic. A lot of people actually do. I, I know that there was a uh, somebody had written it back when I was writing my dissertation, looking around to make sure that nobody else was writing on what I was writing. I saw somebody writing on how Niebuhr was a virtue ethicist. And I can see the appeal of that because Aristotle does do kind of like this uh, happy medium type of ethic, you know, uh, mm. this ethic of moderation. And what I think that Niebuhr is different is Niebuhr doesn't just want to, you know, play slalom and just get in between these two objects, but he's actually playing the objects off of each other to create um, this new way. You know, he's creating the collision between the objects. So it's, it's, it's not, so instead of like trying to go between two icebergs, Niebuhr tries to crash the icebergs together to create some kind of a land bridge or something like that to cross it. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it makes sense. Um, when you say third way, though, or land bridge, and in, in your uh, metaphor, does 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 the metaphor portray the sense of Niebuhr's ambiguity, though? Yeah, I mean, I think both positions do, because in Aristotle's virtue ethics, reason is the method by which we can deduct. Um, you know, between two extremes of a position and find the happy median, right? Mm -hmm. So there is some sort of endpoint in virtue ethics, but when we, when, we th when we say third way, are we also doing the exact same to Niebuhr, applying some sort of unambiguity to his ambiguity? That's a great question. I don't, and I, I don't, think that this analogy should try to, I, I don't think that I'm trying to get rid of the ambiguity. The ambiguity is what, I don't, I don't even want to say charts the path. It's what creates the necessary collision of mindfulness maybe. Um, but I, I think that, so for instance, I think that, I think you're right. Aristotle would use reason to kind of chart that path, but to Niebuhr reason itself is a problem too. It's a problem yeah. just as much as it is a form of solution. 
it's on the canvas of many paints that Niebuhr paints with and tries to create this collision with. Um, so I, yeah, Niebuhr, I, I think the Niebuhr would say ultimately Aristotle's still a rationalist and there, and therein lies his own issues. Um, yeah. but Niebuhr would say even our rationalism is still, you know, a hand servant to the, to the passions like Hume would say. And, uh, and, and so Niebuhr's trying to, you know, all hands on deck, create this collision type type of thing. Uh, but it's not that it, I, I wouldn't. So the way that I would differentiate is it's not a happy medium with Niebuhr. It's a very unhappy collision, mm-hmm. you know, where you're never going to find what's right, but you might be able to find if you're lucky, the best you can. So uh, here's a question. <clears throat> and this is a question I think that is a good one to ask about Niebuhr because he definitely sought, you know, it says that he at times felt while well, he's in this early pastorate, you know, in World War One is beginning and and then world after World War One and with Henry Ford and writing writing for the Christian century and you know all these different posts. Um, there's some that would be critical of Niebuhr, and I don't think Dorian highlights this. I mean, maybe it's not the right context to highlight it, but there's many who would say that he was a bit of a, a fame seeker. And the reason I quite bring this up, there's this guy on Twitter who had a uh, a post or, or an account, and he called, his account was called Reinhold Bieber. And he had a picture <laughs> of Reinhold Bieber with uh, Be- with Bieber. Justin hair. Bieber, yeah, yeah. Well, he's recently changed it to Reinhold Bieber. Um, but I, I messaged him, and I just kind of wanted to see, you know, what what it was about him that made him call, like made this account. I, I figured he'd be a fan of Niebuhr and he's a historian. He didn't quite give me all his credentials, but um, he, he basically said that he, he said this, I'll, I'll, I'm quoting him from Twitter. He says, fame and influence seem to be something he was really interested in. And I think it's worth noting the way the major changes in his thought between World War I and Cold War tended to align with his shifts in public opinion. And so the account Reinhold Beaver, or previously Reinhold Beaver, um, you know, one of the things he expressed is that Niebuhr was maybe a little bit of fame seeker. And I just don't get that from reading Dorian. Um, But I could see how people would think that, you know, like that he kind of chased, I mean, he's very open and honest about the fact that like his denomination, he felt, or his pastorate, he felt restrained by the position that he wanted to go out and influence more people. And he kind of always sought more influence. Um, Look, I'm not uh, the type. I'm not the type to celebrity bash. Like, I, I think that there is a big thing going on right now. I think there's some truth to it that pastors shouldn't be celebrity pastors. And I totally get it. Uh, but there's something to be said for when uh, the nation is facing something difficult or um, the, a, a new issue uh, comes about. There, there will always be celebrities, I, but I want somebody who's actually going to be thoughtful in that position. Maybe yeah. not somebody who always seeks it out. On the other hand, though, like, can you become a celebrity without somewhat seeking it out? I don't know. Yeah, and I think there's something to, and I'm obviously speculating here, but I think there's something to knowing that you have an, you have a way or an approach to life that is effective, like knowing that you have something. And I sort of wonder if Niebuhr even from an arrogant standpoint, sometimes thought I have, I have something here. I have something that everybody else needs to know. Like, I, I don't remember, I think it was last, the last time we recorded it. I can't remember quite, but um, Niebuhr goes to Europe and his brother 
tells either writes him in writes a letter to somebody else or I can't remember exactly, but he basically says he had uh, Reinhold's gone over, Reinhold's gone over to Europe and suddenly he thinks he understands all the problems <laughs> yeah. of, of Europe. And it, maybe he was a little bit arrogant in that way, but he really felt like, hey, I've got Love something. That. That's totally you know? me, by the way. Yeah. Well, and, and, but at the same time, you kind of need a little bit of that craziness, a little bit of that arrogance to like, yeah. do anything, you know, unless you're, otherwise you're stuck in this petrified solution where you're trying to solve every single problem at the depth of full analysis and it's very slow going <laughs> trying to be in a neighbor yeah. you know? i love that because every time somebody speaks up on twitter and says oh here we go again here come all the experts on vaccines here <laughs> oh now all those experts are now turning over to experts on ukraine and i i feel that because gosh i i, I maybe i should feel convicted about it but i don't but i i do I study all that crap well, and I do want to make an informed decision. And, I, and I'm not, I'm not at all bashful about telling people my thoughts. Well, and, and it makes you wonder sometimes And again, this is speculation, but maybe you understood something about solutions that you don't always have to understand the full situation. You're not going to have the perfect solution, right? If you go into understanding, you don't have the perfect solution. I guess Niebuhr's ne- never afraid to offer a solution. He's never afraid to, to mm-hmm. attack something when he sees something wrong. Um, and I yeah. think it would be hypocritical if he if he did just say, let's pack it in and not say anything, because a, a big I know in Beyond Tragedy, he speaks of how the prophet needs to speak. And it's difficult sometimes, like, you know, you're going to be that guy then at the dinner table that everybody's mad at because you brought up this thing. Uh, that's that's what you got to be uh, if you're going to be a prophet in this world and if you're going to speak truth to power. Um, it, and you might even have to be reluctant about it, but I, I don't know. And, and maybe we should move on from all the celebrity talk, but I, but I do think that there, there is, uh, there is a line there because not everybody wants to, to be a celebrity, but there, or to be whatever you want to call it. Not everybody wants to be in the limelight, but sometimes the prophet has to, Well, but, you know, I mean, the last thing I'd say about it is just like, he obviously understood that he had something that was relevant and he was right. You know what I mean? The amount of impact and influence he had. Yeah. He was correct. He knew something that other people were having trouble putting together and he was able to put it together for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's a, that's a good point to end on with that one. Well, That's a major part of what we're talking about here though, is like what Mm -hmm. propelled him onto the national scene. Well, that's true. Yeah. He obviously had something to say that was very relevant to a lot of people. Raised a lot of eyebrows. Yeah. Yeah. When it first came out and let's, let's get into that. So uh, more man and more society is his first work that just explodes. And I th- I don't know the dates on Leaves from the Notebook of a Tame Cynic. I think that came out later, but it was written during his time in Detroit. Yeah. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, More Man and More Society is Niebuhr's first book. I believe he was 35 years old um, when he wrote his first book. Uh, and something to recognize as we're going into this. I, I think Dorian really changed my mind a bit on the way that I read more man and more society um, is that Niebuhr seems to be coming in from the left uh, more further left than what people typically, how t- people typically read more man and more society today, but he's swinging in from the left to critique Christianity even more. And it's, good to understand this is this is the Niebuhr that Cornell West loves uh moral man and more society is the Niebuhr that James Cone loves 
that people from the hard left are going to fall in love with because he is still very much unquestionably socialist. Um, in fact, here's a quote. He says, only socialism can save Western civilization. And that's, and just to look at Niebuhr's development for a second, that is eerily similar to what Niebuhr will say at the time he's writing Nature and Destiny of Man on the eve of World War II when, when he says that only Christianity can save Western civilization. But it's, in, it's, it's interesting that he probably saw the two at this time somewhat intertwined. And probably at this point, Christianity, when he's writing More Men and More Society, Christianity might have been a conduit through which his socialism came. Um, and this and how this would change later, my goodness. I mean, it, it, it would be very much uh, turned around. Um, but uh, let, let, let me get us started on our discussion of More Men and More Society by bringing out this one quote where I think that Dorian gives a great summary of moral man and moral society. And this is on page 449 at the bottom. He says, quote, morality belongs to the individual sphere of action. Morality belongs to the individual sphere of action. Individuals occasionally act out of self disregarding compassion or love, Niebuhr allowed, but groups never overcome the power of self-interest and collective egoism uh, that sustains their existence. The liberal, and this is the last sentence, the liberal Christian attempt to moralize society was therefore not only futile, but stupid. The liberal Christian attempt to moralize society was therefore not only futile, but stupid. I mean, I think he's coming off the back of um, I mean, the Great, the Great Depression, he's coming off the back of World War I. Um, I think he has some ammunition locked and loaded, and I think he's about to have even more with the advent of World War II. Um, I, I think it's a bit pessimistic, but I think it's also realistic. Um, but yeah, borderline cynical. I mean, yeah. I, I think that he would say that these, we got these liberal Christians out here thinking they're changing the world. They aren't doing jack. And it's, he's, he's calling them stupid. Well, but I think, it, it, you know, what it speaks to, I mean, he goes on just after that quote, and it says, uh, Niebuhr argued that because liberal idealists failed to recognize the brutal character of human groups and the resistance of all groups to moral suasion, they were always driven to unrealistic and confused political thought. Secular liberals like John Dewey appealed to reason, and Christian liberals typically appealed to love in their struggles for just society. But both strategies were hopelessly inadequate. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it just seems like he's like, like we've talked about in the past. He's clarifying reality. You know, he's clarifying the situation that like, um, even if his pessimism is too far, even if his cynicism is too far, and even if sometimes groups are moved by moral suasion, it, it is very uncommon. Um, and I think a great example is like what's happening in Ukraine right now. You know, what I mean, it, it, it's almost like I, it, that speaks to reality to me. Like when I when I read that, it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's how things are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like but what it, is liberal Christianity going to do in Ukraine right now? I mean, yeah, give them blankets and food. That's important. It yeah. is. But it also seems just an inadequate response. Like it's inadequate. If we're striving for a more just world, we're not going to achieve that by trying to persuade. You have to be some sort of coercion beyond moral coercion. Yeah, that's good. And but this, but the, what's what's fascinating to me is, and I, I'm the jury's still out with me. 
because I never saw it this way, but Dorian is trying to argue that Niebuhr is so socialist here that he's saying Christianity isn't good enough. We can't, we have to abandon Christianity, almost like he's a lapsed theologian where we can't use this anymore because this isn't working, but the social program is still alive. We still need to do something, but that's no longer working. But, but here's the thing, given this quote, especially, let me read this last part again. Groups never overcome the power of self-interest. Groups never overcome the power of self-interest and collective egotism that sustains their existence. This quote, uh, given this description of moral man, moral society, how can you possibly come away from this thesis and still believe that anything resembling a pure socialism is even possible? Yeah. Because he's, he's saying groups can never overcome the power of self-interest. How can you believe in anything resembling social, socialism once you say that? Well, but I think that, it's, well, I mean, I think that's part of his whole argument though, is that you have to, even in like the book Beyond Tragedy, it seems like you have to take the nevers of life and still strive for them, the ideals of life and still strive for them, despite the fact that you know they're, the, the perfect manifestation of them will, will never come by your own hands. So even as you know the impossibility of it, you still must strive for it. Yeah. Uh, uh, impossible possibility, right, Aaron? That's what you you brought well, up sometime. Yeah, I, I think in in the logic of this of this statement, though, this, that individuals occasionally act out of self disregarding compassion or love, or that individuals are occasionally capable of self transcending virtue or altruism. Mm-hmm. To have some sort of cohesive movement or political organization you have to have individuals who subordinate their will to some abstract general idea right mm-hmm. I, I, either that be implicit or explicit um ideological right that implicitly so um i think in in one sense potentially you can interpret this text or this portion of the text saying that Nieper concedes that no group can ever move beyond the power of self-interest and collective egotism. So we shouldn't try to move to a society or a form of society that doesn't have these elements in it. But -hmm. what is the best one that is there? The one that can take take into full account self-interest but mitigate it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. Oh, sorry. I think it's one way you can put it. Right. But yeah, I can, but that's the other way you can interpret it is the way you've put it. How, how can you achieve a society? Well, I think you're right though. I think that it's going to come down to the end. I think Niebuhr's argument is if you're going to have a socialism, it's going to come down to the individuals who want it and who will subordinate their own interests to the group. Um, this quote is striking and, and it's totally, I concede, this is totally in line with um, Dorian's argument that he's kind of swinging in from the left to critique Christianity here as a socialist to critique Christianity. He, and, and this speaks to the individual component as well. Quote, this, this is kind of stunning seeing this now. Quote, the full maturity of American capitalism will inevitably be followed by the emergence 
of the American Marxian proletarian. Wow. So he's still, when he's writing Moral Man and Morsite, I think we had this discussion with Sabella too. Um, he is still full on board with the Hegelian uh, view of history. The, um, the individual conscience will wake up. You want to elaborate on that for us a little? Just to kind of explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so every Marxist um, has, like Marx is basically, Marxist thought really comes to fruition in, b- between two thinkers, and that's Feuerbach, the materialist, and Hegel, who was, uh, who believed in spirit, but Hegel had this dialectic that through history, through conflict, through conflict, uh, and this is Marx's spin, through the conflict of, of uh, economic classes, we'll find the maturity of a proletariat class, the, the working people, who will eventually create the uprising that shall proceed, precede uh, the kind of Marxian utopia. Um, so it's about gaining this uh, class consciousness um, that Hegel will eventually unveil, uh, you know, or not Hegel will unveil, but Hegelian dialectic is that history will eventually wake up the working class uh, to revolt. Okay. And so Niebuhr here is still hanging on to this. And he's saying that capitalism will inevitably be followed by the emergence of the American Marxian proletarian, saying that it's inevitable. That language of inevitability is very weird to somebody who's read the full body of Niebuhr's work because Niebuhr never, like after this, I think Sabella points to like reflections on the end of an era as when he changes from the Hegelian understanding of history, this progress to the Augustinian or Hebraic view of history, of historical recurrence. But he's still very much believing what all the Marxists were believing at the time, it's just a matter of time before the masses unite and take over their, you know, their capitalist bourgeois lords type you, of thing. You think, though, and this is just to play devil's advocate here, it's, it's correct in one sense to say that if you have, a, just for example, a feudal lord who is a piece of crap, it's inevitable that some sort of thing will happen and people will revolt against your feudal lord. That's inevitable. Maybe. It's another thing to say that history is marching into an inevitable utopia. Now, with Niebuhr here, he says that American capitalism, does he say will be replaced with an American Marxian proletariat? He says the full maturity of American capitalism will inevitably be followed by the emergence of the American Marxian proletarian. Do you think that emergence is on the same vein as, and that's what I'm trying to think here. I can see it in two ways. I can see the inevitability, the emergence is mm-hmm. being interpreted as something that is just socially predictable as opposed to historically Mm. um, calculated as in Hegel or Marx's approach. Does that make sense? That sort of different 
Yeah, so maybe there's a difference between an inevitability and something determined. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's the kind of thing I'm trying to get at. Maybe determined would be more suitable for like you that you're going. That's the hardcore materialistic Marxist. Yeah, Yeah, uh, it's determined, but still that inevitability language still shows that there's something of a residual Hegel. Yeah. I, it might not even be residual. I think I think that I think that Niebuhr probably is still full blown Hegelian here, um, and still believes in this natural progression of the proletariat um, to uh, overcome, you know, um, their uh, capitalist lords. All right. So to wrap things up a little bit, uh, how about uh, some final thoughts, Aaron? Um. I guess to recap, I think what we've witnessed so far is the way potentially Niebuhr's personal life, his experiences invade his thought. And this might be something that is totally um, uh, anti-Descartes, right? That thought and life are not separate entities, but very intertwined and complicated related subjects. From his early age with his father, who was a minister um, and quite in the middle of many theological and political engagements to his thoughts on his father's attitude that he was a gracious guy to his brother's thought on his father as a tyrannical um, ruler to his hard and difficult times with education um, his, his sort of lack of self, not self-resolve, but his self-fulfillment with what he learned, mm-hmm. he, being at odds with his church, with um, Christians in the church, their ideas to liberalism. He never really found a place at home. But I think that really captures probably where his thought tends to go to, towards the concepts that we've kind of really brought out today, irony, paradox dialectic and maybe those three terms tower over neighbor uh, in terms of what his writings uh, emerge out of or what how they engage subjects and yeah, how yeah. he analyzes the word world at hand so hopefully going forward in the podcast when we begin to talk about his works in more depth that will give the listeners uh, a bit more conceptual clarity of how neighbor engages with these subjects yeah good how about you zach uh yeah i think i like this uh chapter it gave me a a very i think it's a very personal window um i think dorian does a really good job just kind of representing what are the influences who who influenced him and he goes you know into the very personal like here's his dad who's teaching him greek as a kid it's helpful to me that's helpful me understand who neighbor is what he was focused on I think it, it, he highlights the conflicted nature of Niebuhr all throughout really well. Yeah. And I, I think it makes me want to, it makes me want to get like, read more about Niebuhr. You know I mean? It makes me kind of confront me and says, like, there's more, there's more. It, yeah. And if I were to conclude, I'd say that just that same thing. I, I think that there's something really intimate here. Uh, this is a, a pretty intimate portrait. I think that Dorian gives where we get a, a glimpse into his personal life with his father. Um, we didn't talk about it much, but even with his brother, and then kind of following him in these stages of collision after collision, feeling alienated and here and alienated there and 
and never quite, he's always kind of the odd duck and he can, even when he should be happy, he's never happy. Uh, he finds something to collide against. And that's something that not only that's deeply relatable to me, and I think probably many people who find themselves in theology, um, it, it's difficult to get far in theology and not build up a whole uh, army of enemies. <laughs> you know, uh, At some point, if you get deep enough into theology, you're going to find people you just do not like. And, uh, and Niebuhr that seems to be a focal point everywhere Niebuhr goes he finds something new to kind of bump up against and I really appreciate that and in the second section I would say that um, I hadn't read this part in a long time uh, since class probably when I had Dorian but I think that I do think that it's interesting I keep coming back to this that, that Dorian does paint Niebuhr as kind of a lapsed theologian a little bit at least in these earlier years uh, where he's writing more men and more society um, as this guy who kind of gave up the struggle of the social gospel, which was Christianity where he was. I mean, they were synonymous, you know? And so Niebuhr's kind of this lapsed theologian and he, he gives up on social gospel, not for, its, not for its internal theological problems, but for the sake of kind of his larger socialist goals. Um, he's painting it kind of as this church thing isn't working in society. It's not working out toward our socialist goals. So let's leave, let's reframe this thing. And I've never read it in this light before, but um, but I got to be honest, uh, I'm still not convinced. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. And maybe I think this is something that I'm going to probably be pressing Dorian on when we get him on here a little bit. I, I'm not I never got this impression ever, never, ever when reading it. I thought that he was correcting a theological problem. Niebuhr was and not kind of castigating it from the position of a socialist. And I, I think this might be kind of uh, an attempt by Dorian to fit Niebuhr more squarely into the liberal tradition by making him come at the social gospel even more from the left. But anyway, that's something that maybe we'll, we'll get down to um, when we get into to Dorian uh, or when we have Dorian on, on, the, on the show. Um, but that's it for us, guys. Uh, thank you, uh, everybody. For, for tuning in once again, make sure you give us a, a like or subscribe us, uh, su- subscribe to our podcast. Um, give us a good rating if that's if, if you're liking the show. Um, make sure you also follow us on Twitter. Uh, we try to post updates and maybe like little polls here and there or something like that. I think the last poll was uh, who is your favorite villain in the Niebuhr universe? And I believe who won that? I think I think I said Bart, his brother Dewey. Who won? Uh, John Dewey. That's John Dewey won. Yeah, that was an epic battle between the two. But anyway, I also say like be on the lookout because with the podcast, we're going to be adding a lot of new interactive elements as well. Hopefully, in the near future, we'll be starting website, and you'll be able to purchase Hmm. some knickknacks and things. Tell them the name. Tell them the name of the store, the merch store. The store shall be called Rhiney Robes and Nebernacks. Rhiney Robes and Nebernacks. Because we here at the Love Like Neber podcast only care about one thing, and that is puns. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, keep a, keep a lookout for that, everybody. Thanks again for watching. Have a good one. Stay safe out there. Bye.